Welcome to the Martin Bailey Photography Podcast. It's August 8, 2017, and this is episode 584. Last week, a friend and fellow traveller on my workshops, Yulana Switicha, asked me a question about good techniques for using long telephoto lenses to photograph moving subjects. Although I have talked about much of what I'll cover in other posts over the years, today we're going to bring all of this into one post and I'll update you with my latest settings, etc. Using a long telephoto lens such as my 100-400mm Mark II lens or even longer telephoto zoom and prime lenses adds a few new concepts that we're required to keep in mind in order to use them successfully. We can split these broadly into two areas, the need to avoid camera movement during the exposure and the need to focus and track a moving subject. One of the things that people tend to overlook when initially starting to use a long telephoto lens or even the long end of a zoom such as my 24 to 105 millimeter is that as you zoom in and frame a subject with a narrower field of view you increase the risk of moving the camera and lens of course during the exposure. Although shorter lenses are generally lighter, it isn't just that long lenses can be heavier and more difficult to handhold that causes this problem. To cause an image to appear blurred, we basically have to move the camera far enough for the details in the scene to move into the adjacent pixel on our sensor. With a telephoto lens, the field of view is much narrower, so even the same amount of movement from our hands effectively moves the image more than when using a wide-angle lens. Just as the images we create with telephoto lenses are magnified, our movement is also amplified. This is also why you'll hear people complaining about the sharpness of telephoto lenses more than wide-angle lenses. Although wide zoom-range lenses can have lower image quality, It's sometimes just a case of it being much easier to snaffle your shot with a long lens and people often just don't realise that. If you consider that the problem is details captured moving over to the adjacent pixels during the exposure, one way to overcome this is to make the exposure faster. If the exposure finishes before the details we're photographing move to the next pixel or further, the image will be sharp. There is a simple rule of thumb to use that helps to avoid this problem. Basically, you use the focal length that you'll shoot at as the denominator in the shutter speed fraction. So, if you are shooting at 400mm without considering any other factors such as subject movement, you will need a shutter speed of a 400th of a second to avoid camera shake. If you are shooting at 100mm, a shutter speed of 100th of a second or faster is advisable. This is also the case for wider focal lengths, such as 24mm. It depends on how steady your posture and hand-holding techniques are, but with good technique, 
you are probably able to handhold at 24 millimeters with a shutter speed of a 25th of a second. Of course, it's possible, if not likely, that if there is anything moving in your scene, as you slow down your shutter speed, it will probably move during the exposure. Just like camera movement, if any part of the scene moves far enough to traverse multiple pixels in your photograph, it will start to appear blurry. The more pixels traversed, the more blurry that subject will become. So unless our intention is to use the subject movement artistically, we need to compensate for subject movement by increasing our shutter speed. And how much will depend on how fast and the direction in which the subject is moving, and also, to a degree, how close they are to the camera. If I'm photographing a street with people walking around, I'll probably try to set at least a 125th of a second shutter speed if I wanted to freeze that motion. For someone running, I'd use at least a 500th of a second or faster if I need a really sharp photo. For a bird in flight, I try to get at least an 800th of a second, though generally, I'm looking at between a thousandth and two thousandth of a second. These are just general guidelines, of course. I've photographed birds in flight much slower, and if you are photographing a hummingbird, even an eight thousandth of a second shutter speed may not freeze it the movement in its wings. Also, a subject moving towards you won't require as fast a shutter speed as one moving across the frame. Let's keep in mind too that although a very useful feature, image stabilization or vibration reduction in our lenses is only effective for slow moving or stationary subjects. For a moving subject, we still need to use these shutter speed guidelines to freeze that movement of the subject, if indeed that's our goal. I say that I try to get these shutter speeds because there is often a trade-off. As we'll talk about shortly, for larger birds or multiple subjects that require a deeper depth of field, we often have to use a small aperture. And as we make the aperture smaller, less light enters the camera, so we need to use higher ISO settings and or longer shutter speeds to maintain a good exposure. On an overcast day, for example, if necessary, you can get away with slower shutter speeds for large birds like swans and cranes and large eagles in flight. For this photograph of two hooper swans at dawn, when it was overcast and still pretty dark, I had to increase my ISO to 2500 to get a shutter speed of a 500th of a second at f10. My focal length was only 114 millimeters, so f10 was enough to get both birds sharp in this instance. And because they're large birds, a 500th of a second will get me sharp wings until they're really flapping quickly. It will sometimes leave movement in the wingtips during a flap, but I'm fine with that. So I've mentioned the depth of field in our images, and this is something that we must keep in mind, especially when working at longer focal lengths, 
because the depth of field in our images gets shallower as we increase the focal length. I often photograph wildlife at between f8 and f14 because even at these small apertures I often still only have very shallow depth of field in which to place my subject and the background will often still be nice and blurred how I like it. By the way, if you want to follow along with the images and the diagrams that I'm about to start showing you, then please do go to the blog at mbp.ac584. Unfortunately, as of August 2017, Apple have still broken their own enhanced podcast format as the images get out of sync and everything. If you want to view the podcasts and the images, on an iOS device, I recommend searching for and downloading an app called Downcast. Downcast is a really rich podcast player and the images show fine in there, which kind of proves that there's nothing wrong with the podcasts. It's Apple. Here, though, I'd like to take a look at a diagram that I created for my Sharpshooter ebook from Craft and Vision which shows the relationship between focal length and depth of field. At 24mm, a very wide focal length, with your aperture set to f16, if you focus on something at 1.2 meters or 4 feet, the depth of field starts at 0.6 meters or 2 feet and stretches to infinity, so everything from 2 feet is in focus. At 50mm, a slightly longer focal length, if you focus at 5 meters or 17 feet, everything from 2.6 meters or 8.6 feet to infinity will be in focus. But when you use a longer focal length, such as 200 millimeters, you have to focus right out at 83 meters or 274 feet before you can achieve pan focus, where everything from 42 meters or 137 feet would be in focus. If we expand this explanation to talk about longer focal lengths such as 400 millimeters for example, to achieve pan focus you would need to be focusing the lens at 345 meters or 1130 feet and this really is too far to get an impactful photograph of your subject. So using pan focus or hyperfocal distance won't really come into play with long telephoto lenses. Of course, another aspect of depth of field is that the closer you focus, the shallower the depth of field gets. But we won't go into any more details on this today. I have an old post called Depth of Field Explained, which you can find at mbp.ac/132. That post is from some nine years ago, but it does go into this in more detail, so please check that out if you're interested. Also, let's keep in mind that depth of field calculations are based on what's considered acceptable sharpness in an 8x10 inch print. If you need to print larger or require everything to be tack sharp, you won't see that for everything inside this theoretical depth of field. We'll talk more about critical focus in a moment. 
Let's move on now and talk about focusing techniques for moving subjects such as wildlife or sports. I'm a wildlife shooter rather than a sports shooter, but what we'll cover will be equally useful for both. Although we have a larger area of depth of field in our images, as we mentioned earlier, that entire area is not totally sharp. It's what's considered to be in acceptable focus. There is an area within the depth of field that is totally sharp, and that's called the area of critical focus. To nail critical focus, we need to focus on the subject of most interest, and when the subject is moving around, there are a number of techniques that we need to use to nail that critical focus, and we'll cover that now. First of all, it can take a while to even get used to finding the subject in the viewfinder when you first lift your camera to your eye. With a telephoto zoom lens, you can try zooming out initially, and then once you have your subject in the viewfinder, zoom in while keeping the subject framed. That takes time though, and if you're using a telephoto prime lens, it isn't even possible. So you need to develop the ability to raise the camera to your eye and quickly find and frame the subject as the action unfolds. This is one of those things that you really just need to keep doing. It comes with practice. I think subconsciously I am aligning the lens with my subject as I either raise the camera or I move my eye towards the viewfinder if using a camera support. So by the time I start to look through the viewfinder, the subject isn't hard to locate. I haven't used the Telephoto Prime for a number of years now, but I do recall a few times when I had to move my eye away from the viewfinder and relocate a bird in flight and then try again to find it when I used to shoot with a 600mm Prime lens. But it did get easier with practice. Now I'm either using my 100-400mm or the 200-400mm with the built-in 1.4x extender and both give me the ability to zoom out a little if I need to locate my subject in the sky or scene. One of the most challenging aspects of using a long telephoto lens to photograph a moving subject is accurately tracking the subject to enable you to photograph it. To do this, we need to use a continuous focus mode, such as AI servo on a Canon camera or continuous servo on a Nikon camera. These modes will enable you to continue to focus on your subject while you keep your autofocus engaged. How well your camera does at actually sticking with your intended subject depends on your tracking settings for any given situation. A tip here, especially for Canon users, is to add the main focus settings to your My Menu screen, as you can see in this photo that I've embedded at the blog at this point. As you can see, I've added tracking sensitivity, acceleration deceleration tracking, and AF point auto switching to My Menu. This gives me the ability to quickly tweak these settings if I need to. 
But to be totally honest, I haven't changed these settings since I reached what I believe to be the optimal settings for the subjects I shoot with my Canon EOS 5DSR camera. I should mention that my starting point in the AF setting screens was case 2, as this is the closest to what I wanted to achieve. The explanation text says, Continue to track subjects, ignoring possible obstacles. If you press the info button on the back of the camera while on the AF setting screen, you can see the text, even if the subjects briefly move from the AF point, they will remain in focus. Effective when obstacles briefly come between the camera and subject, or with erratically moving subjects that are harder to track. Set tracking sensitivity to minus two for even better tracking of subjects that may move from the selected AF point. As you can see from the photograph of my settings screen, I did indeed move tracking sensitivity to minus two. The info button for Axel D-cell tracking states that you should increase this for better tracking of subjects that erratically accelerate or stop. I found that for eagles swooping down to catch fish or for snow monkeys that move quite erratically as they run down a snow-covered hillside, having this set to plus one works very well. In fact, although it was tweaking these settings while photographing the snow monkeys that brought me to these settings, as I mentioned a moment ago, I pretty much leave these settings as they are for all of my wildlife work. The AF point auto switching setting works best for me at zero. This setting only comes into effect when using all 61 AF points, which we'll look at shortly. But I found that anything over zero for this setting makes the camera move to other obstacles or areas of strong contrast very easily. One example is when photographing the sea eagles in Hokkaido over the water, as in this next photograph. Water catches the light, especially on sunny days, and will often steal the focus from the eagle or any other subject on or over water very easily. With my current settings, that probably happens less than 3% of the time now. Although it used to be a big problem for me before these features were added to our cameras and I found my optimal settings from amongst these options. Another instance when these settings that I've shared helps is when, for example, I'm photographing on a bird coming in to land or flying amongst other birds. With the auto-switching too sensitive, the moment another bird enters the frame and goes over an AF point, the focus will switch to the closer bird. With the sensitivity dialed down a little, as long as I stay with my original subject, other obstacles can move right across the frame over the other AF points, and the camera will usually not jump to it while I continue to focus. There are still times, of course, when the autofocus doesn't work perfectly, though these times get fewer and farther between with each generation of camera. When it does happen, the best thing to do is to stop focusing momentarily, then try to regain focus. 
If the subject is moving relatively parallel to you, as in they aren't getting any closer or further away, another option is to simply stop focusing. But you need to remove the focus mechanism from the shutter button to do that. Because of this, I always change my cameras so that the shutter button only engages metering. As you can see from this photo of my custom controls menu, shutter button half press only engages metering start and not autofocus as well, which is the default setting. Once your shutter button no longer engages your autofocus, you need to press the AF on button on the top right of the back of the camera to engage autofocus. This takes some getting used to and people often forget to focus occasionally after starting to use this back button focus technique. But generally, this is a better way to focus for wildlife and sports photographers because it gives the following benefits. The main benefit is that you can release the shutter without forcing the camera to try to autofocus. This might seem unnecessary until you try it, but sometimes the fact that the shutter button engages the autofocus really gets in the way. For example, if you are photographing a subject that is in a heavily textured environment or with other things moving around in the foreground, being able to snap the focus on the main subject quickly, then release your thumb from the AF on button, enables us to get our shot without the camera losing focus as it tries to lock on something else. There are also times, say when photographing a bird in flight, when you don't necessarily want the bird to be in the middle of the frame where the AF points are. At times like this, we can frame the subject with the focus points over the subject for a moment, press the back AF on button to gain focus, and then release the AF on button again. This makes the back AF on button act almost like a one-shot or single-shot focusing mode and then enables us to reframe the subject away from the AF points to release the shutter and get our photograph. Of course, if the subject is moving towards us or further away, they might go out of our area of critical sharpness. So you have to be careful or very quick, but having this ability without actually switching to one-shot mode is invaluable and has enabled me to get many shots that would not have been possible otherwise. Even for landscape photography, I use this method of focusing and it means that I can automatically switch to manual focus without actually flicking the AF button on my lens to MF simply by not pressing the AF on button on the back of the camera. That means I can focus on what I want to focus on in a scene and then frame up my shot, and because the shutter button doesn't make the camera autofocus again, I don't have to worry about where the focus points are, because the lens won't try to refocus when I press the shutter button to start my exposure. If your shutter button engages autofocus as soon as you press the shutter button to make your exposure, the lens will start to focus again, and depending on where the focus points you have selected are, it may well focus on the wrong part of the scene. 
Another important setting when photographing subjects that are moving around is setting up your camera to use multiple AF points in a specific way. Some photographers will recommend moving the focus point or a cluster of focus points around the viewfinder, but in my experience that method is too clumsy and results in you losing shots as you try to align your focus points with your subject. At the very least, it results in you having your subject in the same part of the frame for too many shots, and I don't like that. To give you the greatest compositional freedom, I recommend turning on all focus points and then set up your camera to gain initial focus with a selected focus point or the center focus point, but then continue to track the subject with all focus points. To turn on all focus points on my Canon 5DSR, after switching to AI servo mode, I press the AF point selection button, which is the button at the top right hand corner on the back of the camera. Then, while looking through the viewfinder or the top LCD display, I press the M FN, the multifunction button, next to the main dial behind the shutter button to toggle through the AF modes and switch from the modes represented by SEL and then two brackets to the brackets and then AF mode, which is the 61 point automatic selection AF. I've tried to include these instructions in a photograph on the blog. So again, if this is going over your head, do look, go to the blog at mbp.ac584 and check out the illustrations. Another important setting here is in the AF4 autofocus settings screen on the 5DSR for the initial AF point AI servo AF, where I choose initial AF point selected. This tells the camera to gain initial focus with the AF point that I've selected, but then as the subject moves or I recompose, the camera will track the subject around the frame with the rest of the AF points. If you get the settings right, you should see the AF points look like the bottom of the two diagrams that I've put in the blog post with all of the AF points represented and the center one selected. If you see an empty AF frame like the top diagram, check your settings and refer to your manual if necessary. The settings we've walked through just now work very well for me, but we still need to decide what to focus on as we shoot, so here are a few pointers. When photographing a subject with eyes, in general, the eyes will need to be sharp. If you are close enough to focus directly on the eyes, do so. When you are a bit further away, get into the habit of focusing on the head when possible. If the animal is so far away or moving too fast or erratically that you can't focus on the head, then focus on the base of the neck or body. When photographing a bird in flight, from the side, the body will often be about the same distance from the camera as the head, so focusing on the body will be fine then too. For photographs like the one that I've embedded here, of an eagle catching a fish, I will 
wait until the eagle swoops down and then try to lock focus on the body. Note that the wings have completely covered the body at the time of this frame, but the settings that I've selected prevent the camera from moving focus to the wings as they move. When focusing on two birds in flight, you'd generally try to get the bird that is closer to the camera critically focused, and then try to use a small enough aperture to get the second bird in focus as well, as I did in my earlier Hooper Swans example. If, however, the second bird is slightly out of focus, it might not be too much of an issue if the closer bird is sharp. There are always exceptions to any guideline though, so if, for example, the bird that is further away is doing something of interest, then try to focus on that instead. In a sports photograph with a field full of soccer players, for example, you'll generally want the critical focus to be on the player that is creating the action, such as kicking the ball or saving a goal, rather than the other players. Another important factor in focusing that sometimes isn't obvious is that as good as the autofocus systems on our cameras are getting, they still require a bit of texture to achieve focus. If you're focusing on a subject with very little texture, the autofocus will often start searching, and you may find that you have to move the camera until the focus point or points are over the edge of the subject or some area with more texture. The autofocus systems available today still need something to get their teeth into. I love the flexibility of the 100-400mm lens as I can handhold this lens successfully, which gives me more flexibility for fast-paced wildlife shooting. When using longer, heavier super telephoto lenses though, such as my 200-400mm lens with the built-in 1.4x extender, or any of the super telephoto prime lenses available, you really need to use a gimbal-style tripod head. A gimbal gives you the ability to move the camera around effortlessly and smoothly because the weight is perfectly balanced. In this next photo, you can see the Really Right Stuff PG-02 Pano Gimbal Head. This is what I've been using for the last three or four years, and I absolutely love it. The resistance provided as you pan around is just right for smooth tracking and panning with your subjects. Also, it breaks down into smaller components, so it packs really well for traveling. Next is a photo of my Really Right Stuff PG-02 Pano Gimbal with my 200-400mm lens mounted on it. The important thing to note when using a gimbal like this is that you need to adjust the position of the components of the head so that the lens is perfectly balanced. When you tilt the lens down or up, then let go of it, it should stay where it is. If it flops up or down, it isn't balanced. Note that I usually set my camera up on a gimbal with the gimbal arm to the right side of the camera. This enables me to reach out and manually adjust focus or adjust the settings of the lens without the gimbal arm getting in the way. One other bit of advice is to try to avoid using a gimbal head for lenses like the 100-400mm lens as you will generally get better results with the smaller lenses like this 
by shooting handheld. Of course, if you find the 100-400mm too heavy to handhold for long periods of time, a gimbal will help, but you'll lose some of the freedom to move around, etc. I shouldn't really close today without mentioning monopods. I do own a monopod, but to be totally honest, I rarely use it. I'm not going to say that they're not worth using, but for the kind of work I do, they don't seem to help. I prefer to either handhold or go for the full gimbal head. Because of this, I'm not going to offer any advice about monopods. If or when I do start using mine, I'll be sure to give you a full rundown of my experiences. So I hope this has been useful. I've tried to cover everything, but I know I've probably forgotten something. Also, if you aren't a Canon shooter, I do hope you are still able to gain something from this. Most systems have similar features, but the names are different, so you'll need to reference your manual to figure out how to translate this information to your own system. If there is something that you're still not sure about though, by all means ask questions in the comment section for this blog post at mbp.ac584 and I'll try to help as best I can. Thanks very much for listening today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share a link with your friends. Subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast program to ensure an interrupted delivery. If you have a moment to rate the podcast or leave us a review in iTunes, that helps to keep us relevant in the huge number of podcasts out there now. You can find me on Google+, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, etc. And links to everything that I'm up to are at martinbaileyphotography.com, so do drop by and take a look. I'll be back next week with another episode, but in the meantime, you take care and have a great week, whatever you're doing. Bye-bye.